0: Took a deeper dive. We're learning more and more about how uh, the four foundations of mindfulness are first applied on our cushion and then off our cushion. Brian's uh, class was a classic, um, and he really simplified it and broke it down to it, everything resolves into this one thing, and it's it's really the one thing that that. Um, is is a recognition of life, our breath. When we want to check if somebody has died on us, the first thing we normally do is we check their pulse and we see if they're breathing, right? If there's respiration, we're alive. It's our connection to all of life is our breath. And if we can just be mindful of our breath in the body in this moment, the in-breath and the out-breath, we're alive and we're living this life. And the more we can do that, the more well concentrated we are, the more we have developed refined mindfulness, the more at peace we are with just our human life, as it is. So the secret to human life isn't to get the biggest pile of gold or having the most notoriety or having the most likes on TickBot, whatever those things are, anti-social media, the secret to life is, as it turns out, is just being present for it without the need for it to be any different. And that's the practice we're developing. And these four foundations of mindfulness, as simple as they are, are the connection to all of that. It's, it's, the, it's the true pathway. There's an eightfold path, but that path is founded on the four foundations of mindfulness. And so we build on this thing first on the breath in the body, in breath and out breath. And then we recognize when feelings or thoughts are getting us out of this moment and we take a breath and we become mindful of that fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is the present quality of mind. How, what is it? What's the quality of my mind in this moment? How do I know what it is? Ron talked about this a little earlier. We all did too. If there's tension in the body... We know what the quality of our mind is. It's stuck in eye making. It's stuck in in an ego personality that that is never satiated. We fall into harsh judgments of ourselves. We think that we should be better or different. And in the Dhamma, we learn to let go of judgment. One of the great things that the Dhamma brings us is we learn the significant difference between approval and acceptance. The silliest, most insane thing we can do is not is disapprove of ourselves, isn't it? And it doesn't matter what other people might be saying about ourselves, if we're living within the framework of the Eightfold Path, we have liberated ourselves from the need to judge ourselves in any way because we know we're good to go. And I know when I realized, and this wasn't when I was as awakened as I am now, uh as I started to integrate the Eightfold Path, and I think some of you might agree with what I'm about to say, not that it's all that controversial, some things I might say. Um, when I realized that if I could stay within the framework and the guidance of the Eightfold Path, I was good to go. As Brian talked about this morning, I, I knew that I wasn't going to harm myself or another human being. That's liberation. That's liberation. That's liberation. There's something that happens to us, and I think it happens to most of us as little children. Um, the first time we get angry at our parents, or our brothers, or our sisters, or something like that, and we inadvertently hurt someone, it imprints our mind, and we become fearful of how our actions might impact another person, because we didn't intend to hurt someone, and yet we did. I know that I hurt my parents a lot when I was a kid. I was just out of control. I hurt my brothers and sisters. I hurt a lot of people. And some people are more harmful than others, depending on what our compulsions are. But we all do it. And it and it all it hurts us when we realize that I did something to hurt somebody that I really love, and I don't even know how I did it. And that's a terrifying thing, isn't it? But when we get to developing the Eightfold Path and we realize that I have my mind under control and so I have my speech and my actions under control. I'm not going to hurt myself and I'm not going to hurt you anymore. That's liberation. And it's liberation from that debilitating thought that I might hurt somebody without even knowing it, without even having the the, 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 uh, the intention to hurt someone. But just my mind gets out of control and I say, F you, S O B. When I really didn't mean that. Even saying it, it sounds awful. Not saying the right words. It's no way to live a life, right? To be in competition with others. But really, what we are is we're in competition with ourselves. And when we touch this thing, this breath in the body, the in breath and the out breath, we realize how pure we really are. So, all of that, you know, Brian touched on dependent origination. And we're not going to teach that class, but dependent origination begins with: from ignorance of four noble truths comes fabrications. From fabrications comes consciousness. What that little three initial links in the, the chain of dependencies means that because I don't understand what it means to be a human being, I create a fabricated or a corrupted view, a put-together view. Fabrication is something that we make. We make ourselves. And what are we making from that fabrication from formed in ignorance of four noble truths? Our consciousness, our ongoing thinking. And that then feeds everything in our our experience. So as we again, as we can gain control of our minds, we can stop that constant eye making. Now these next two sections sessions, more sections in this session <laughs> um, are first and, and it's interesting how the buddha teaches this. First he teaches us how to be uh, how to in, how to develop the four foundations of mindfulness first on our on our cushion. And then he teaches us what takes what can take us out of that. And again the brilliance of this man from 2,600 years ago that had no technology. He had no, nothing to reference. There weren't even any, any written things for him. I mean, there was writing during the Buddhist time, but it wasn't in northern India or southern Nepal. The Romans and the Greeks had writing developed before that. But the Buddha figured this all out by just becoming familiar with his mind and watching what was going on. And he realized that this was what human beings do. This is what human beings do when they're, in, when they're ignorant of Four Noble Truths. And then right after that, he teaches us to be mindful of the, the five hindrances. And there's only five. And what's a hindrance? A hindrance is something that is going to hinder me from developing to its culmination, our Dhamma practice. And these are little um, aspects of mind that we use and have developed as a way of living in the world, because the world seems harsh. It seems at times that it's against us. Sometimes we say things that we wish we didn't say, and we hurt people that we love. And that's terrifying. Losing control, thinking that we got to go out into the world. I mean, the world seems ever more complicated, right? We all have to go out into it and make our life. And it seems like such a struggle for almost everyone. That's the first noble truth. And why does the Buddha teach in this way? Why didn't he he just say, forget about all the stressors and just be happy? Because he knew there there, there needed to be a process. And there needed to be, be a way to overcome what I'm going to teach this afternoon. Because it is these hindrances that cause us to create fabrications It's these hindrances that will take us away from practice. Um, Mindfulness of the five hindrances. And then I'm going to talk about the five clinging aggregate because the five five hindrances (laughs) feed the five clinging aggregates. And I think you'll see the connection. (coughs) And just my commentary to begin with. Notice the guarantors offered by the Buddha. When one completely abandons a hindrance, it will not arise again. Completely abandoning the hindrances is a reasonable goal and a skillful reference to progress. So in the beginning of practice, it might seem an unreasonable goal, but I think very quickly and with the support of this wonderful sangha that we have, we'll realize that it's not unreasonable, that we're all, be, they're all doing it. One of the things that we talk about, maybe not directly addressing the hindrances, but how we are using the dhamma, how we're using the breath in the body to not let these hindrances block our practice. And then when we can recognize that I'm not letting my, um, my anger or my ill will, or my doubt, my uncertainty about my place in the world, when I'm able to recognize it and not let it lead to further um, disturbing qualities of mind. Now I know I'm practicing So it's in reference to these two that it's useful. The Buddha's words. Remain mindful of the quality of mind in reference to the five hindrances. Again, there's only five. The first one is sensual desire. And the Buddha says when sensual desire is present. What did you say, Zach? You take yourself, beat yourself up a little bit. The Buddha gives us an an alternative to that. When sensual desire is present, be mindful that sensual desire is present. That's all. That's all. Just be mindful that that's what's occurring. Don't judge yourself harshly. Start learning the difference between approval and acceptance. In this moment, I might be craving another one of those, whatever that kind of role was I had at lunch. But I can take a breath and bring my mind back into where I'm at right here, right now. And it might be a silly example, but we do that with all kinds of things, don't we? That takes us out of what's occurring. And so we're missing out on this portion of our lives. And our lives are not to be missed. When sensual desire is not present, be mindful that sensual desire is not present. That's how you know your dhamma practice is bearing fruit. Be mindful of abandoning sensual desire when it arises. When it arises, we simply abandon it. We let it go. You know, it's like opening up your hand. It's gone. Be mindful that when sensual desire has been in parentheses, completely abandoned, sensual desire will not arise in the future. So the deeper our practice gets and the more nuanced we understand it, the closer we get to that point where sensual desire will not arise in the future. In the beginning of practice, it might seem just just the most impossible thing to even consider. How could this happen? How could I ever be free of sensual desire? Sometimes that notion that we're... uh, That's part of what we're hoping to do, to let go of sensual desire, feels like annihilation. It feels like, how am I going to be in the world if I don't fulfill my desires? Isn't that the point of life? Well, it's not. Because no matter what we get, no matter what we acquire, all of that is impermanent. And we know it's impermanent. And it's only filling, even that big pile of gold that I have hidden in my backyard, that's just filling a, a niche in my mind that is a stressor, isn't it? Because I think I saw my neighbor looking around that hole in the backyard. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that, that um, having things and even acquiring wealth is a bad thing, but it can be debilitating when we make when we're stuck in eye making over it, when ill will is present, be mindful that ill will is present. When ill will is not present, be mindful that ill will is not present. Be mindful of abandoning ill will when it arises. Be mindful that when ill will has been completely abandoned, ill will will not arise again in the future. Okay. Another guarantor from the Buddha. When laziness and drowsiness is present, beat yourself up. Be mindful that laziness and drowsiness is present. You see how gentle this man is in this practice is? There's nothing harsh about this, is there? We just recognize what's this quality of mind in this moment? Is it leading me towards awakening full human maturity, towards understanding? Or is it leading me away? Because that's the only choice we have in each and every moment. And we shouldn't be hypervigilant because that's a different type of mindlessness. But we should be mindful of it. When it occurs, we recognize it and we take a breath and we simply abandon it. When laziness and drowsiness is not present, be mindful that laziness and drowsiness is not present. Be mindful of abandoning laziness and drowsiness when it arises. Be mindful that when laziness and drowsiness has been completely abandoned, laziness and drowsiness will not arise in the future. So, a lot of times, excuse me. Oh, sorry. We got
1: a brown thing, isn't it? It's
0: Slav got me all excited. (laughs) Slav, you made me spill my coffee. I'm glad you're there. Um, Laziness and drowsiness on our cushion can manifest as you just can't sit that long. You think that even five minutes is not something you want to put the effort in. You're too lazy to do it. Or... You might give yourself the excuse that you're just too tired. A lot of times drowsiness is the reaction to not wanting to sit. And you just feel tired so you get off your cushion. But if you just take another breath and do the best you can to get past that laziness and drowsiness that everybody has to go through in the beginning of practice, you'll be able to build from 5 minutes to 10 to 15 to 20, maybe 30 minutes. And that's why we teach the Dhamma in the way that we teach it. Start with, with short periods. You know, I say to almost everyone, start with five minutes twice a day and build on that. Most try people... use your, your... Yeah, and use your... Recorder. You, and use the recordings because that reinforces the four foundations of mindfulness. Don't use... I, I, I try to rule people's lives. It's best to not use an app or some kind of timer... You know that it's better to use the guidance because you're reinforcing these four foundations of mindfulness that we talk about thank you another hindrance that will get us off our cushion and off our practice is restlessness and anxiety and the buddha teaches us when restlessness and anxiety is present be mindful that restlessness and anxiety is present when restlessness and anxiety is not present be mindful that restlessness and anxiety is not present Be mindful of abandoning restlessness and anxiety when it arises. Be mindful that when restlessness and anxiety has been completely abandoned, restlessness and anxiety will not arise in the future. When doubt and uncertainty is present, be mindful that doubt and uncertainty is present. When I was in a particular uh, Zen practice, we spent almost a year going deeply into into doubt exploring doubt some of you might have even got into a practice like that like there was some value in that the buddha recognized it 2600 years ago he says if you're full of doubt and uncertainty let go of it it's just a quality of mind that's a fabrication it's not something to be explored or analyzed it's to be abandoned right we don't get into analysis of any of these things, of our behaviors or our tendencies. You know, we, we, that's another form of eye making, isn't it? Almost like creating a specialness. What I got going on in my head is so much worse or so much different than other people. And in some cases it is, you know, the Buddha, remember the Buddha taught the Dhamma for those with just a speck of dust in their eyes, recognizing there were going to be some people that even the buddha said 2600 years ago they would not be able to do this for whatever reason or didn't want to but he also recognized these common hindrances that everybody can recognize and abandon as they arise be mindful of abandoning doubt and uncertainty when it arises be mindful that when doubt and uncertainty has been completely abandoned doubt and uncertainty uncertainty will not arise in the future Then the Buddha says, in this way, one remains mindful of the quality of mind, the arising and the passing away of the qualities of mind, independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. Imagine that. What goes on in the world, what goes on in your immediate family and circle of friends will no longer affect the quality of your mind. And you'll be ever more able to be mindful for the things that you want to be mindful for. To be fully present with those that you really love. To actually have an experience of a human life, rather than always grasping after something. Independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. This is how one remains mindful of the quality of mind in and of itself. And that's in reference to the fourth foundation of mindfulness and with, again, what we say at the end of every Jhana session. Be at peace with your mind. It's your mind. Right? Why shouldn't we be at peace with our mind? And if we're not, we know where to look. We know where the disturbance is and we know what to do with it. We don't pick at it like a scab. We don't analyze it. We don't try to find its root cause. We understand the root cause is ignorance of four noble truths. This next section is called mindfulness of the five clinging aggregates. And this is the Buddha's um, description of the ongoing personal experience of dukkha, of stress and suffering, and how we inflict this on ourselves, excuse me, by clinging to these five, um, by clinging together these five aggregates and using them to, to describe a self when that self is all, just fabricated. Buddha's words. Furthermore, one remains mindful of the quality of mind in reference to the five clinging aggregates. So the five clinging aggregates are form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and consciousness. But remember, when we're, you know, I just say this often, but Many people today see and hear that word consciousness and think that it's some kind of universal grand cosmic thing. Well, that's not for human beings. Consciousness is individual. It's not out there. My consciousness is not floating around the galaxy and floating around different planes. If I think it's out there, that's an external projection. We talk about that. Bring your mind back in here where it belongs in its body. Because this is where our life is, not out there, not in some other plane of existence, no matter how wonderful we might have imagined it to be. This life is enough for us if we're just present for
2: it. It also talks a lot about the individual components of consciousness, the eye consciousness, most mm-hmm. consciousness. Which makes it even more mundane just yeah it's it's almost like it's just part of
0: your body. yeah it's it's the body. buddha gives a machine yeah it's interesting how they in, in some suttas the buddha gives a separate consciousness to each one, one of our senses right and it when you think about that it really your eye perceives something different than your nose does and your and your smell does or that you're hearing and it requires a different part of the brain when it When a certain part of the brain gets damaged, you might not be able to hear anymore, but you'll be able to see. So the Buddha, and again, how did this guy figure this out? There is a a type of consciousness that you can say is eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, taste consciousness, body consciousness. right? And and we use these senses, Mary's going to talk about this tonight, the sixth sense space, which we use to either skillfully inform ourselves of what's occurring right now, or use it for further grasping after. Sorry to, to teach a little bit of your. So these five clinging aggregates form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and consciousness are what we cling together out of ignorance and we use it to, to describe itself to ourselves and to the world. But all of it is a fabrication. Remindful of the form, remind, remain mindful of form and the arising and passing away of form. This form. You know, what, what, is, what form are we talking about? This form. This form arises and passes away. One day you won't have old Johnny to kick around anymore. <laughs> I'm laughing because it is, I mean, that's human life. There's nothing, uh, there's nothing to be fearful about that or even wish it to be different. Human beings are born and they die. If Siddhartha was a little bit more like me, he would say, get over it. Don't take it personally. Don't worry about that. It's going to end. Be present for this moment, and then it doesn't matter when it ends, because you will have lived a human life. Remain mindful of the form and the arising and passing away of form. Remain mindful of feelings and the arising and passing away of feelings. Why do we make such a big deal about it? They always arise and pass away. Remain mindful of perceptions. This relates also to the the third foundation of mindfulness or the, the thought process, right? Perceptions. Remain mindful of perceptions and the arising and passing away of perceptions. Remain mindful of fabrications and the arising and passing away of fabrications. Fabrications, excuse me. Remain mindful of consciousness, right? Some people might think that's a little crazy, but we can be mindful of our thoughts. In fact, that's the point. We gain we gain control of our thinking by being mindful of it. So consciousness, again, is not something out there, and it's not something imposed on us. It's not something all that terribly miraculous because everybody has it. It's just thinking, right? Remain mindful of thinking and the arising and passing away of thinking. In this way, the Buddha says, one remains mindful of the five clinging aggregates and the arising and passing away of the five clinging aggregates, again, independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. He can say that after being mindful of the arising and the passing away. Right? In this moment, I might be fixated on a fabrication that I have. But because of my practice, I have the consciousness. I mean, I have the yeah, I have the consciousness and the concentration to recognize what I'm doing each and every moment. And again, this isn't a, a, a hyper vigilant type of being present for each and every moment. It's kind of like we talked about um, being mindful when you're doing the dishes or walking. Practice develops that way too. We just recognize it in this moment. I'm mindful of a fabrication, but I'm in control of it, aren't I? I'm in gentle control of my own mind. And I can think what I want to think when I want to think it, it's liberation.
3: Um, Please. When um, Julia said something before about it being um, empowering, and I think if you can take all of this And the stories that are running through your head that are the unique stories that you're telling yourself or your unique situation or the unique bad thing you think is happening or whatever. And instead, as you're saying, be more impartial to it so that it's a thing, but it's not your unique thing. Yep. And if anyone's feeling like, yeah, well, I can feel it rising, but it ain't passing away so quickly, you know, take a talk, it's getting in the morning, you know, we've all experienced that yep. and and what Tracy experienced. Um, but that's the cleaning and craving. Yeah, so it was Warna, a member of our saga um, some time ago, who just one day had a realization that if you, as you're emphasizing today, that you really, Yep, It's the breath in, but it's the breath out too. Yep. So it's important. the rising and it's the passing away. And without the impartiality or the dispassionate or the not taking it personally, we're getting so tied up in your unique story. That's going through your head about what's going on for each of us right now in this room, right? Yep. And instead say, this is a hindrance. I recognize you a hindrance. And I let you go, or this is an aggregate. And I breathe in, and I breathe out as your attempt to depersonalize it and to let it go. Yeah,
0: yeah, Thank and you that's that. what's
3: empowering.
0: Yeah, that's and we we are all all of us are unique. Our stories are unique. Our our situations are all unique. But that's the most ordinary thing in the world, isn't it? That's the hard U- uniqueness part. Uniqueness is ordinary. Everybody is unique, right? It's so a big deal. when it comes back to you know, have to develop
1: this practice to have the insights. Like, yeah. To recognize it, you know. Keep rolling back around that. Without it, I mean, some form of little power or something else.
0: Yeah, and then right yeah, it's, a, it's a it power. It is. And and even in the the resolution of that way of living in the world is is itself a fabrication. But don't be afraid of your uniqueness and don't but don't let it stop you. You know, just because you're unique, again, your uniqueness is ordinary. Everybody's unique. How many people are there? And there's nine billion people or something in the world. There's nine unique individuals. But we're all having an ordinary human existence. As soon as we want it to be extraordinary, we've lost our minds. and We're creating stress for ourselves.
3: And like if we get together with a good friend, say, and we talk about our unique situation and we find out they've experienced that too. All of a sudden you find gratification and, wow, I'm not so unique. You're going through that too or you've thought of that too. I've lost my own head about whatever. So it's the same thing. But yep. you're doing it in a mature way, with yourself.
0: Yes. You know? Yeah. And that way, you're not it, 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 using the example that Mary just talked about. You're just you're talking with a friend of yours, and you're you might be talking about difficulties you're having in your life, and you think that they're unique, but you realize they're not. But that's different than commiserating, isn't it? Than talking right. about miserableness. You know, I'm miserable. You're miserable. No, when and Mature human communication is often on a, a level that is beyond um, trying to help the other person, but just to be present for the other person and to be able to, to uh, have enough uh, gentleness and inner poise to be able to share enough of your own humanity with another person. Right again, we, this this notion that we become automatons because we lose eye making is is just it's it's completely opposite of what actually occurs as we develop full and maturity. Okay, the big finish. The Buddha's words. This is how one remains mindful of the five clinging aggregates in and of themselves. Are you all getting that line too? In and of themselves. It just means that's what it is. We don't do anything with it. We don't try to color it or any way. This is how I find myself. I am what I am. I don't need to explain myself or, or judge myself in any way, provided I'm living within the framework of the Eightfold Path. That's why it's a, it's a limiting path, but it's also a liberating path. It exposes our own humanity to
4: ourselves.
0: What do you think, Tom?
4: Um, yeah, thanks for the teaching. You you mentioned at the beginning the sort of interconnectedness between the hindrances and the five clinging aggregates. And would you, or could you look at it if you were to really summarize it, that interconnectedness? interconnectedness would be that the the hindrances would be kind of the outcome and you know (coughs) of basically the thing that is getting in the way of you having a calm and peaceful mind and the clinging aggregates would be the how how that happens it's like the mean so if you had ill will for example as a as a hindrance then um that would be as a result of you not being mindful of feelings and the arising and passing away of feelings for example so is that a way of looking at the, the, the sort of the relationship between both of those sorry i've got some balloons coming up on my screen yeah, what was I that? <laughs> <laughs> i've got some i've got some bug on my zoom account which is um make I, I that's happened a few times in i had a call with investors earlier this week and then suddenly i had something <laughs> coming up like Did you get the money you
0: were after? <laughs> <laughs> so no. there, there, there's <laughs> a, there's a, um, an interconnectedness, I guess you could say, between the hindrances and the five clinging aggregates. Uh, I think it's best explained this way: if the five clinging aggregates are the ongoing personal experience of dukkha, our hindrances want to keep us in dukkha, right? But I don't want that to sound like the hindrances are some kind of outside agency either. We create the hindrance and we create the five clinging aggregates. So the Buddha Buddha would almost always, I came across a few different descriptions, but almost always describe dukkha in this very simple way. Birth is dukkha, meaning stressful. Uh, Sickness is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Death is dukkha. It's stressful. It's disappointing. It's distracting. And then he would say Craving after is Dukkha, and not, I don't what's the right way to say it now? Mm -hmm. Getting what one one wants. Yeah, getting what one wants, craving after what you want, but also, geez, I can't remember how to say it anymore.
3: Getting what you want. Yeah,
0: getting and, and having aversion to what might happen to you is Dukkha, right? Craving after an aversion is Dukkha. And then he would conclude that by saying, in short, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha, are stress and suffering. So, again, these five clinging aggregates, form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and consciousness, is the ongoing personal experience of dukkha. And, again, we don't need to memorize, we don't need to get too analytical about it, but just realize we're stuck in this vehicle of stress and suffering until we get out of it, until we stop clinging. Until we become sovereign, we become independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. I was thinking about
1: this. No, Duca. Capacity. Tell me more. Give me more <laughs> examples. So he gives them three defilements. And we go, I, I don't get it. Greed, aversion, and delusion. Flesh it out a little. So people want real life examples and want to be able to relate to what he's talking about. This overall arching dukkha is so broad, but it's like the fleshing out of it's a, it's a pyramid. We've yeah. got dukkha at the top, and we've got the defilements, and you've got the hindrances and you've got the aggregates. It's just,
0: yeah, it just sounds like an awful lot. And if you just if you read Becoming Buddha and just read it you're going to think wow this is just there's just too much here but when you just when you start practicing it and you hear these wonderful suttas were almost all situational again the Buddha didn't teach from a curriculum he was t- t- teaching in response to what was going on in the, in the original Sangha
1: Well, vocabulary is important just because it's the language of in my business there's a certain way to talk about fruits and vegetables so it's common so people are talking the same thing you're not saying decaying and i'm not saying rot. it's there's a language this is the vocabulary of adam it's yeah. helpful but it's not don't get sidetracked to think that that's the way to understand anything
0: yeah the, matt talked about this really wonderfully well too as david just did this is we we use human beings use language to to communicate with each other. So we naturally use language to communicate the Dhamma. That's what the Buddha did. But again, it's for us to take these words and bring them into practice and, and ask questions like Tom just did or make the point that Tom just did. Tom, did that uh, satisfy what you were talking about?
4: Um, yeah, I'm getting there. I'm getting there.
0: <laughs> I think you're there. Anything else today, my friend, during this no. session?
4: No, all good. Thank you. Thanks for the teaching.
0: I'm glad, I'm glad you joined. Uh, nobody's changed their mind about being on Candy Camera. So, I'm going to start over there in that
1: corner Uh-oh. with. Mm-hmm.
0: Bridget. Yeah, Bridget. Thank
5: you for the teaching. And um, this was just kind of reminded me of two like really primitive early techniques that I use. And by techniques I don't mean like as opposed to the Dhamma. Just like you know how we all have devices we use that can work within the Dhamma to help us think of things. And um Neither of them are original, but I had heard in a book, in book, and it was just a story, and it was a character, and she was wrestling with something, and her therapist was like, when are you going to stop putting that tape in the VCR? Huh.
4: And that's been <laughs> so
5: useful for me. Yeah. Now that I, like at the time, I don't think I really understood it. I thought, well, that's interesting. And I kind of held on to it like a nugget, and I was like, I feel like there's something there, you know? But now I feel like it's super useful because instead of over analyzing it or whatever, I'll be like, "Oh look, you're playing the L. will tape again." Yeah. Why are you gonna, you know, maybe like throw it out? <laughs> at least like now I feel like yeah, 50 put it up. on the shelf. You know. Yeah. I feel like you know
6: what? I'm sick of watching that. It's <laughs> outdated. <laughs> right. You can just yeah. throw right? the yeah. 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 Exactly. Who watches PBS the-
5: anymore anyway? You're just like, like, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> the other technique that I use sometimes MP3. is like you know, what I'm really, when it's maybe not as neat as that, you know, and maybe I'm feeling like, is this something I need to think about? Is there something here I can do? Or am I just playing this over again because I really want to obsess about it or whatever? Mm-hmm. Is sometimes I say, you know, I'm just gonna, like, I guess it's like a really push technique. I'm just gonna put this on the river and watch it float by and just kind of in my mind mm-hmm. and make sure mm-hmm. just you know i'm just going to put this down because if it's actually something it'll come around again like in five minutes, it'll mm-hmm. come back if there's something i can do about it next time i have the wisdom or concentration to address an issue or maybe this is just a feeling so then i just kind of treat it like it's a passing feeling or something
0: yeah, that's that's really an, an excellent uh, mm-hmm. metaphor.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it's it's what we're talking about when we when we're referring to conditioned thinking, isn't it? We keep, we keep putting that same tape back in
1: mm-hmm.
0: and wondering why we keep feeling this way. Because we keep feeling this way, we do it to ourselves, don't we? We're yeah, and again, we we're kind of condition to think that it's because of worldly conditions, but it's not. What we're holding in mind. Thank you, Bridget. Right next to Bridget is you. I'm just going to take you Um I had a career coach for a little while who said your brain just needs a
7: chew toy. You just need to chew on it for a while. Just <laughs> <Chew> a puzzle. <laughs> she used to tell me to do a puzzle because I love puzzles. And at the time, that was very healed oh, I just used to do a puzzle, all along, all along, so I can stop thinking about that thing. Yeah. Um, but I, um, I don't know. It doesn't resonate with me so much anymore. I think because I'm able to, I don't need a puzzle. I don't yeah. need to think about chew toys so much now that I have a practice. Um. So I, um, I get what you're saying.
0: Yeah, you recognize when you're chewing on one of the aggregates.
7: Yeah, (laughs) and just how it's so not necessary.
1: Yeah.
7: I mean, often the things that I'm that I'm chewing on are so not—they're so future, or they're so past, or and it's just not in the present moment. Obviously, like sometimes your present moment is thinking about the future. The Dhamma doesn't have a problem with that. It's just. What is all the issue bringing to how you're doing it?
0: That you can do that. Well, yeah, and if you're using, you can be thinking about the future in the present moment and using it for eye making or just mm-hmm. realizing that you've got to put the mortgage payment in the mail tomorrow. You know, that's just a practical way of using our minds know, without eye making. Thank you, Julia. I forgot to get the phone. Thank you, Bridget. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Raquel.
1: Thank you for the teaching. and uh, Thank you to the for the wonderful comments. Uh, I really deserve the service. Thank you, Raquel. Hello, Jane.
0: Thank you. thank you for the
7: teaching. This is very bad, but I just find myself not thinking so much. Yeah. -hmm.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. (laughs) Thanks. Hello, Mark.
2: Hello. Uh, Thanks for teaching. Great comments. Set of the room. Really insightful.
1: Great metaphors.
0: Thank you, Mark. Tracy.
7: Um, I think, um, going back to the five hindrances, um, I think what's, what I'm starting to see is that with, because of ignorance of four noble truths, myself, I'll speak for myself and maybe most of us, for this practice, like, lived my life thinking that like these five things were it like this is who I am I'm all these things and nothing else and I've had some back and forth in my mind about the value of following the dog Mm -hmm. which is I guess downwinds everything because I think oh the middle way so boring and
1: (laughs) it just seems
7: lame and man, dispassionate, that word, I don't like it, and I want to be passionate, and you know, those things come up for me, and the more I practice anyway, um, what I'm realizing is, like, I'm having these moments of, like, I think, and you've you've described it as enthusiastic engagement with the Dhamma. I'm having those moments, and they're so much more exciting and, (laughs)
1: like,
7: beautiful than anything that's going on in here. And so I realized that that's why I keep coming back. Like, even though it's just in, in moments at this point, because I'm still sort of young in this,
1: yeah.
7: it's like, Ooh, that's the good stuff. Like I gotta get yeah. of more of that. And that's so much better than all the sensual desire and, you know, the ill will and I hate this person or I love this person or this thing or that thing. It's like, I thought that was it for a really long time. I thought, If I could just, going back to your analogy with the drinking, like if I could just get that drink, everything's going to be fine. If I could just have this it's like, oh, that's all I need. um, Yeah, that's really a sorry, sort of shallow way to live a life. You know, it's very thin. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't know what was possible before coming here and and practicing Mm -hmm. this. And, um, yeah, like even that... Experience I had last night being caught up in all of that and like getting through it, even though it's hard, it's like, yeah, it's hard, but it's
1: worth
0: it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> all right, we got to write that down. Yeah. <laughs> that was excellent. Lesser yeah. pleasures,
7: but that's lesser pleasures, right? Greater and lesser feel pl- pleasures. feels thin, you know, it's just not it anymore. <laughs> yeah.
0: It is. It, it, it surpasses everything that we can acquire in the in the world. And again, it doesn't mean that acquiring things is bad, but it's not the point. The point is to be present for it, and then you can make decisions about how much effort you want to put into this or that. And if you want to put a lot of effort into catching a big fish, okay, go ahead and do it, but <coughs> don't do it because you need to tell your neighbor about the big fish you caught. Mm-hmm. Just living your life, however you want to live it. But again, being present for it, and that's what you're talking about, Tracy, aren't you? To finally be present for different moments <laughs> in your life, and now that you've had that experience of it, you become enraptured with it, right? Joyfully engaged in your Dhamma practice because you know what it will bring. And again, that's why we talk about it. So we talk about the benefits of developing the practice.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you, Tracy. Mary. Go to Mary.
3: Thank you for the teaching, John. Um, I just want to throw one more metaphor in the metaphor pile. But um, if you look on the top, right, when it's, you know, you pull that thing, and it's mm-hmm. just going around, and it's upright, and it's predictable, and it's humming, right? But then, when you get in the past and the future, is when it starts to topple. Mm-hmm. And so, when you're when you're feeling those emotions, that you're out of sorts, you're usually in the past or the future. So you're not, you know, on the right top, on you wrong, if you will. And I think I've contributed enough already. So I, I appreciate all the good conversations.
0: I hope you don't think you've contributed enough, it's not. <laughs> Thank you for what you've contributed so far.
5: Laura. Thank you, John, yeah, good.
7: Thank you, everyone, for your insight. Just happy to be
0: here. I'm so happy you're here too. Exactly. <laughs> That's job. Thank you for holding <laughs> up the wall.
6: Um, thank you for teaching, John. Uh, I think For me, the big you know breakthrough over the last few weeks was recognizing how the hindrances feel in my body. Mm. And how do they feel? Not great. No. But you know it's 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 a I've I've identified very specific sensations associated with each of them. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, ill will is right here. <laughs> yeah. Doubt and uncertainty is here. Mm-hmm. Restlessness and anxiety is right here. Wow. And and immediately, you know, in the past, those feelings are that fixed, change, solve, right, that Matt and, and Jen and others have mentioned. And as soon as those come in, there's there's narrative around all of those things. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we become obsessed with that narrative. And our identity is that narrative. And yeah. we, just, we ask ourselves, why do we keep putting the... VHS, VHS, VHS and the tape <laughs> the, t- the VHS player, but that's that's all we know. It that's, is. That's what we know.
0: That's, that's what, what we've we conditioned ourselves to believe. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
6: And what are we without that? And so we've become wired for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, right, when you're able to acknowledge the arising of that and take a breath and don't let the narrative take hold,
1: you're here. Yeah. just want to interrupt.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's remarkable how many good teachers we have in this room. All of you. Really. It really is. I learned something from each and every one of you. And I'm the grizzled old master. <laughs> Hello, you grizzled old master. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I
2: um, always wanted to be a crunchy
6: <laughs> I didn't say
2: that.
3: <laughs> you arrived.
5: <laughs> <laughs> no. You mean?
2: Just no. kidding.
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, you used to be a cranky old bastard, though. I,
2: I have, I have <laughs> had my times. And I realized that being a cranky old bastard, just doesn't work. <laughs> uh, and that's one of the, the things coming out of the practice is, is, is that. Because it's just a bundle of ill will, basically.
1: Yeah.
2: And, and you know you make that your personality, and it just—it doesn't resolve anything. It just adds to more strife. And more stuff comes back to you, and, and that. But I just also wanted to say that I remember myself saying a long time ago, probably before we even went in the first retreat, that for decades I missed my old song for my old previous. And um, that at that point I had finally an inkling that there was something that we replaced that. Mm-hmm. And now realizing that uh, it did way more than that. Mm-hmm. The, the, what I've gotten from the Sangha in my practice has been just invaluable. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's truly like, like coming home, like the, the thing that I, that I looked for all this time. Um, and, <clears throat> and I'm every Every day, grateful that I'm a part of this life. and I, I've been able to contribute to it. as well. Great yeah. mm-hmm. Spoken like a true
0: We yeah.
1: try. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you get to reap all the benefit of it.
1: Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah.
0: Out of but it, it it's because of all of us and our Sangha over the years that has changed and developed. um, But I've always said if you want to, if you look up right effort in the dictionary, you'll see Ram's picture because he had a lot of doubt and uncertainty for years. But he kept coming and kept coming. You didn't even meditate for the first 10 or 15 years of practice, right? I mean, really, the first couple of years.
2: But a lot of the, a lot of the in incentive for for this right effort came from Simon. Oh yeah, I saw the examples of, of that in Simon. Yeah. And in
0: Yeah, and that was right from the beginning. You know, it was a, it was a different experience for me, in the beginning. To to. Um, without a lot of intention, meaning not trying to to make something, not trying to fabricate something, but to develop a Sangha that was actually Mm well-focused. And it has changed. I mean, there's only a few of us in this room that were from the very beginning. Rama is one of them. Um, But each and every one over the course of that last 11 years has contributed to our practice. In one way or another, there was an issue a couple of years ago where um, we had to kind of lay down the law a little bit. Um, but even that person that was that caused us to do that taught us a lot.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. And again, it's right. Effort is is just it, it relates to what Tracy was talking about, too. It's just staying with it, you know, having the perseverance, but you can't do it unless you realize the, the benefit of at least have a little inkling that, yeah, this is it, this is good for me. And, and that, again, it becomes self encouraging. You know, it's, it's not, we're not trying to become something other than what we are. We're just unique, ordinary human beings. And you're one of the most unique characters I've ever met. <laughs> and I'm so glad to know you. Thanks, bro. Uh,
4: John, John could I add something?
0: No, yeah, of course.
4: <laughs> um, I just because um, I think when, when you know when we we read about sort of be mindful of feelings as feelings you know arise and pass away and whatnot, um, it's something I've noticed, and, and I think I often think about what my life would be like if I hadn't have sort of gone down this path, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm pretty sure that I'm a far more overall a far more contented and peaceful human being than i than i would have been you know had i had i not um you know discovered this Sangha and and you know learnt about the Buddha's teachings um at the same time i have moments i think where because i'm shining a sort of almost a, sort of magnifying glass on on your actual feelings rather than distracting mm. yourself from them. You know, I think if, if I hadn't have gone down this path, I probably would have, you know, I'd be watching sport right now instead, or I'd be, I don't know, down the pub or whatever it is, right, on a Saturday night. And I'd be thinking, well, that's, that's a way of dealing with those slightly uncomfortable feelings. So I think there's a, there's, a, there's a potential at some, on some occasions for the pain that you feel or the discomfort you feel to be even more acute and it might be, um, you know, just momentarily more acute than it might be if you were to just, you know, sort of go down a path of entire distraction. Yeah. Um, and so, um, obviously, as you observe the, the arising and passing away of that, that's where you see the liberation. So I've had sort of more acute moments of, perhaps, you know, passing and arising and passing, but anxiety. But I've also seen the liberation that comes from from watching it. So I just think that that ties in both this teaching also with what Ram is saying and with with the value of the Sangha, because that's where you you're able to share these experiences, aren't you? And the fact you realize that, that each time you come to class, there are people perhaps in on that particular day struggling a little bit more than you are or further ahead than you are on that particular day right and that that can be so you become a comfort to others and perhaps an a source of encouragement mm-hmm. or inspiration to others and they can do the same to you so that's where you know i i see the massive benefit of uh, and i and i haven't been able to i've missed quite a lot of classes recently for various sorts of reasons but it's it it's so valuable to you know it, it's just fantastic to come back because you realize that you're on this path, it's your own path, but we're we're all on similar paths, right? And we all we're all human beings going through a sort of a shared life experience. Or it has there are commonalities in our life experiences and 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 yeah, it's just just really really really, really helpful for me. And I, I think it is for, for for all of you in the room as well. So so I just wanted to add that. Um,
0: well, thank you. It's fantastic to have you back too Tom. When are you gonna teach again?
4: Um, wow! Well, soon, soon. I'm going to teach on Mondays, and I, I'd love to teach on a Saturday. Oh, I'm going to I'm, yeah. going to, I'm going to, I'm um, going to coordinate with Jen.
0: Yeah, pick a Saturday when you can teach. Uh, yeah, in the in the beginning, when we, uh, if we've been very skillful at avoiding our feelings by one method or another, you know, mine was drugs and alcohol, but some people use shopping or sex or. TV or TikTok, like anti-social media. Um, and then we start calming down a little bit, and maybe for the first time in our lives, we're actually feeling a whole feeling, you know, letting it play out within us. And that can seem pretty raw. But, again, that's why we reiterate, you probably hear it at every class, I hope to. You need to be very gentle with yourself in this practice. And was it you, Bridget, or... Somebody was talking about courage last night. Uh, it takes a lot of courage, a gentle courage. But it, Cody, yeah, yeah, it's, and I think all of you would agree with that. And if you're here and you're practicing the Dhamma, you have that gentle courage, or you wouldn't be here. That's what Thomas was talking about.
2: And that courage allows you to make that effort.
0: Yeah. And it, it's a, it, that's,
2: the, that's the motivation. That's that's the driving force.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the, the Buddha talks about that in different ways, forbearance and, you know, but it does. It takes a certain amount of courage. But even that doesn't make us special, does it? Courage is a, is a human quality. It's part of us. You know, we're, we don't have to go out and, and acquire it somewhere. It's, it's just like love. It's just like compassion. It's just like hate. You know, all of these things—we're not, we're not, we can't become something other than what we are. But we can touch on what it means to be a real human being and understand what that is, and and abandon all those things that create stress in our lives. That's all we're doing. John,
1: just real quick.
0: Please. Please let me put here. I'll let you hear. Here's Laura. And
7: what, we
1: were saying last night about and what you were saying about courage?
7: Did you say that? I mean, there's so many brilliant artists that I admire and look up to for their honest like, expression of our, you know, even their own brokenness. Like you look at, I don't know, Francis Bacon's paintings and you see this just honest representation of this fragmented, almost distorted, yeah. you know, self. But that's, would you say, that's not, it's not like we're indulging in our own suffering or stress. It's almost like a healthy... Wow expression of that to better understand it rather than you know i don't
0: know i
1: just think of art as an an example
0: i think it can be i think that's i think a lot of art came out of out of pain Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot there's a lot of artists that we can point to and even even the more um i don't know why i'm thinking of grandma moses but she popped it in my head uh the more pleasant you know that, that's another reflection of a person's mind. And my mom, when she turned sixty, she never painted in her life, and she went to a little painting class and learned watercolors, and she painted the most beautiful, you know, not, nothing but you know, a, a little scene by a lake with a with a girl in a dress standing there, you know, and and so some people lean lean towards art. Mary does, and, your, and Liz does uh as a as a way of expressing ourselves, and, uh, and and other people deal with that differently, but I think in a lot of a lot of art, and it's interesting you brought this up because I was just thinking about it recently, a lot of art is a reflection of our own need for self-therapy. you know, and uh, you should see some of my early writings before I started writing about what the Buddha taught. You know a lot of it was was kind of this self-reflective narrative that uh, proved to be true nonsense but you know but that was where i was at at the time too i think eric dillman is one of those artists isn't yeah, he so. you know, laura's brother eric it's just a just a brilliant art his stuff is online by the way you want to look yeah. it up right eric dillman look yeah. it up yeah it really is It's a, it's amazing stuff yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, but thank you for for bringing that up and uh, great dinner conversation. Yeah, that's <laughs> a yeah. yeah. so, short. Do yeah. you have <laughs> great, great conversation?
7: Yeah, yeah.
0: Do you have anything else you'd like to? No, thank you. Thank you so much, Laura. Brian, do you remember Brian from this morning?
6: I don't. What was this morning? Uh, yeah, dispassion sounds terrible until you try it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, restraint and moderation sound terrible too. It does, and when you yeah. try it out, Why it's like, it wow, changed? the other side of that's calm and peace.
1: Yeah.
6: <laughs> right. And there's this this clinging to that passion of who am I without my passion? Yeah. <laughs> and if you don't let go and just walk off the cliff, you'll never
1: know. Well, and dispassion
3: isn't indifference.
6: No,
1: it's not.
3: Right? So that's important yeah. For anyone struggling with this, I remember the first time I heard that word, I was like, "Ah, yeah,
1: not
3: <laughs> I obviously have passion, but um, but it's not. Yeah, it's not.
1: I've stopped asking kids out of college what they're passionate about. I don't. I don't care anymore. I want, I want to know what their purpose is now. Uh,
3: I don't even know yeah, so. I know that's
1: that's another dinner conversation.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Well, let's go. Oh, really. Did I catch you one? Yeah. Oh, let's see My my, my uh, short term memory is not quite what it used to be. <laughs> All right. David said it's it's time to eat. So, again, let's continue to, to engage in the eightfold path, particularly right speech, because I'm going to be there, so I'll be listening to every one of you. <laughs> Thank you for joining. Thank you for listening.